Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Singapore-based pianist, vocalist, composer, and educator, the great Jeremy Montiero. He opened up about his latest 2021 CD, Live at No Black Tie, with his trio of Jay Anderson and Louis Nash. This is his 45th release, and again, proves how he is drawn to the spontaneity of jazz music. He has been a professional since he was 16 years old, and he has never stopped. Over the years, he has performed with the likes of James Moody, Ernie Watts, Simon and Garfunkel, and in magnificent venues all over the globe. In 2002, he received Singapore's highest honor in the arts, deservedly so, the Cultural Medallion. He's got a wonderful story, great insights. Enjoy the interview. Hi, Joe. Nice to hear your voice. Nice to be speaking to you. Yeah, nice speaking to you, man. How's, how's everything going? It's okay. Uh, been busy the last couple of weeks, but uh, now a nice uh, long weekend here. It's Easter weekend here in Singapore. Wonderful. Well, hey, I really appreciate you taking some time out. I'm looking forward to delving into the new album and your life and music. Thank you. Yeah, I've been checking you out as well, man. You're a real uh, soldier for jazz, man. Thank you so much. Oh, man, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm just standing on the shoulders of giants, man. It's it's uh, I love doing this. Like all of us, like all of us, my friend. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Well, you know, the interesting thing about what we're going through here in the in the world at large is that, you know, we've all obviously missed live music, and it's very refreshing to see artists releasing live live albums, and you've done that. Talk to me a little bit about you know the timing of this coming out now as we kind of start hopefully coming out of the pandemic. The fact that it's live kind of talk to me a little bit about this release. Well, you know, uh, uh, Lewis uh, Nash and Jay Anderson, they were in Singapore to work with me for the Lion City Youth Jazz Festival, where we bring in top mentors to, you know, to, to train, to rehearse, to do workshops, and then play a concert with the youth musicians in Singapore. It kind of like just throwing the kids in the deep end with working with people like Lewis and uh, Jay, and also previously with Ben Golson, as well as. Uh, Randy Brecker and people like that, and after we finished this in 20, uh, 2019, you know, we decided let's uh, let's take let's go do a tour of China and and Southeast Asia. So we played some cities in China, and then we started off in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, where this club no no black tie is, and it's a lovely club. It's probably the nicest jazz club in this in in Southeast Asia. Beautiful Fazioli piano in there, and. Um, and so we went in, and my good friend and great engineer Sunil Kumar, who we've been working together for 21 years now, recorded it live. And then we just kind of kept it in the can, you know. Through 2020, we did a bunch of mixes, you know. I mean, just trying to get that sound, that really nice live sound. And finally, we got it together and decided to finish it off. I got it mastered in Germany, where I recorded my last 10 albums in Darmstadt in Germany. And Klaus uh, Endel, the, the, the mastering engineer, did a great job in the mastering. And and then we put it out. Wonderful. So, you know, it seems interesting to me now, since we haven't had any live music, this releasing albums during this time is rather unique because it's one of the few ways that you can directly get in front of the listener. Yeah, and you know, I've been doing a lot of live streaming as well. Uh, uh, you know, it's not the best thing to do, but you know, we, we musicians, we just have to play, you know, we just have to connect with our audiences in whatever way we can. So it was nice. I've had a good relationship with the International Jazz Day uh, organization, which is that runs the IJD for UNESCO. And we, you know, in the last two IJDs, we put out uh, shows. So one was just a live concert. And then last year, 
we put out a concert called uh, a concert that you know got more than 110,000 views. And last year in June, I put out a, my 60th birthday concert on like we were going to do it at the concert hall, but ended up doing a, a nice live stream show. And I had Winter Marcellus and uh, Bob James and just a whole Randy Brecker, friends from around the region. And we, we, we reached out to more than 220,000 views, you know. So it's a new way. So even going forward, when I do my shows here in concert halls, recently I just did a concert hall show uh, uh, two Saturdays ago. And we only allowed 250 in the 1,600-seat concert hall. But we live stream. People could buy tickets and watch from anywhere in the world. So I think going forward, the live thing is still going to be the most important thing. But we're going to have to tag on when we can this live stream thing as well for the rest of the world to see now that we've actually connected with the global audience in that way. How have you been doing during the pandemic? How, how have you fared with, you know, the no live music and everything being shuffled the way it has? You know, I'm, I'm first a musician more than anything else. The whole center of my life is music, playing music, um, composing as well as playing. And, and so you can imagine that, you know, I'm one of those people who had a huge knock uh, more than 50% of my income, you know. Luckily, I still have a lot of support from uh, from a, a private bank here based in Singapore who, who you know, for, they've been supporting me for 15 years, the EFG Bank, and they basically still want me to do album projects. And so every year I put out a couple of records and uh, and, and it's supported by them. And, and so I still had that to do. And then I run the Jazz Association of Singapore which I sometimes joke and say that it's like the baby jazz at Lincoln Center here in Singapore. And I, I call myself the baby Winton, and he, he laughs at that when I say that. <laughs> Basically, just uh, 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 with that organization, I run um, two bands, two big bands, the Jazz, the jazz Association Singapore Jazz Orchestra, as well as the, the Youth Orchestra. That keeps us going. Uh, even with uh, live, I've been with uh, online things. It just keeps work flowing a little bit for everyone, you know? And we do uh, online talks about the history of jazz. We do all kinds of stuff that we can to just, you know, keep the flame, keep the torch burning here in Singapore as far as jazz is concerned. So that's kept me busy. All that uh, has kept me busy. You know, I do a little bit of teaching work. But generally, you know, I went from up to, up to 2016, I played like 200 gigs a year. And there was concerts as well as small concerts as well as... Uh, free concerts and club gigs three or four nights a week traveling around the world playing clubs and you know concerts in, in uh, basically europe a lot i mean i played the london jazz festival a few times and well 2016 i made i made a decision to stop doing so many club gigs so that i cut my gigs down to about 50 or 80 a year on purpose because i felt I had too much to do club gigs not so many i don't need to do that it's been 40 over years since i've been doing this right so then i went down to about 50, 80 gigs a year. And then when COVID hit, man, it was like, there were no gigs. There were no live gigs, you know. Missing the money is one thing, but missing the people and missing playing the music and seeing my friends, I think that's been as rough as, as having to go through the the, uh, the the reduction in income. On This is your 45th album. You're, you are the king of swing in Singapore. How did this happen? How did you get... In your childhood, how did you get this love of jazz that has materialized in, into such a legacy for you right now? Well, I started playing the piano. My parents started me on piano, like classical piano lessons when I was like six, seven years old. Well, when I was like 10, 12 years old, my dad used to play both the jazz guitar and the Hawaiian guitar. 
and he kind of played in that same kind of vein as Herb, uh, like a Herb Ellis, you know, that kind of style. And uh, he used to be a policeman, and then he used to moonlight playing gigs, you know. So, uh, so, and then he used to have jam sessions at home. So, uh, music and jazz, jazz was around me all the time growing up. And then also, also, he used to buy a lot of great jazz records, uh, you know, including uh, things, things by Joe. But all those Pablo, remember the Pablo label? Yeah. That Norman Brand started, uh, uh, you know, basically was uh, all those Oscar Peterson, Joe Pass, Ray Brown, Ek Thickpen, and all those great. Uh, uh, so I, I listened to a whole bunch of Pablo records before I got into any other label. And that was my, my induction into jazz. I mean, Oscar Peterson was my first hero, you know, until I gave up trying to sound like him because my hands about a third the size of his, you know, that was really my start. And, and 14 years old, I remember listening to Quincy Jones record. Those filaments was playing these, uh, this, uh, uh, Ray Brown tune called Brown Ballad. And I was just standing there, 13 year old boy in my living room. And I had tears streaming down my cheek. And my mom came up to me and said, why are you standing in the middle of the living room and crying? I said, Mom, I have never heard anything more beautiful than this, you know. Wow. And at that point, I decided there and then I wanted to become a jazz musician. Of course, I played on lots of, I did a lot of session work. I played more than 300 pop records. I've done like more than 700 jingles. But, but that was the point. I wanted to become a professional musician and more specifically a jazz musician. Little did I know that 20 years from then, well, 19 years from then, I would step on the stage and play a bunch of concerts with Toots Tillemans as well. But at that time, I didn't know. I just knew I wanted to be a musician, you know. Wow, dream realized. That's a wonderful story. And Quincy yeah. Jones is a titan, too. I, I remember seeing his special uh, on Netflix, and I just, I yeah. can't, it's mind-boggling to think how much good he's done for the world of music over yeah. the years. Actually, I had a chance to actually have a dinner with him in Singapore, a nice, long, three-hour dinner with a bunch of business people. I started talking to him about my relationship with James Moody. Like I worked with James Moody on and off for 15 years. And he didn't care about the eight other business people at the dinner. It was just him and me. The rest of the people were not even there after, for him after that, you know. <laughs> it was so funny. And we just talked about music all night. It was a wonderful meeting. Well, you, speaking of James Moody, and there's been a lot of other people. Went Marsalis, you talked about Ernie Watts, Simon and Garfunkel. What what did you learn from a lot of those big names, legends, and luminaries in in the world of music that in turn helped you to mentor and teach younger players? Well, from Ernie Watts, because my longest relationship has got to be with Ernie Watts. We first played together in March of 1988, and then we've done like oh, a bunch just constantly working together. I've had to, I really, I, I produced one of his records called Stand Up for a Dutch label, uh, Odyssey Records. It's out of print now. And what I learned from him was just discipline. Man, this guy is Mr. Discipline, you know. Uh, you know, when we went on tour, he was, you know, he, he just didn't, didn't, didn't allow musicians who came late, were put on probation and they were more than 50 minutes late for the, for the airport or anything, you know. I mean, he was a nice guy, but he was very cut and dry about the work, you know. I mean, he, lobby calls were like sacred to him, you know. And, and then also the music kind of focus and time he puts into, uh, into the music, something really rubbed off on me. Uh, no matter, he, you know, he always used to tell me, you know, there's no such thing as difficult music, just music you don't know, so just get to know your music, you know. And and I just, you know, that was one of the biggest ethics. With Moody, you know, it was just, you know, just learning to be such a universally loving person, you know. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of meeting, meeting Moody, but, you know, he, he kissed everybody he met 
uh, on the on the cheek, you know, left and right cheek, and he had this really strong cologne that he used. And he, even if you took a shower, you know, you would you would still smell of James Moody, this kind of debuff holy water, I called it, you know, uh, <laughs> for the next two or three days. And just that, like that, the humanity and and the, the love and the humility for someone as as great as he was is what I caught from from James Moody, you know. You've had such a long storied career with so many things that have happened. What are you the proudest of? You know, there's always things that we see as listeners and as fans on the outside and we're like, wow, that that's wonderful. But what is it that you like really look back on and think, man, I'm really glad that happened or I'm glad I was in charge of that? You know, being having done this 45 years and, and man, you know, if I really were to count more than 7,000 gigs, right? I mean, you know, it's like, it's hard for me. And for, uh, furthermore, I'm a Gemini. I don't really have a favorite anything, you know. So oh, it's really hard when people say, name one thing. You know, I guess walking on that, walking off that stage in Montreal, you know, uh, the main stage in Montreal, that same night that Chip Korea played in 1988, and on a night that included Chip Korea and um, the Yellow Jackets and Bobby Womack, Mon- Mongo Santa Maria, who, 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 who jammed along with us offstage on my set, you know. I was playing that with L.D. Young and Red Hulk, the famous rhythm session from uh, originally with the Ramsey Lewis Trio, and John Stubblefield was on saxophone, and and uh, O'Donnell Levy, the great guitar players, played with organists like Jeff McDuff and, and wrote all the songs in the last Herbie Man Atlantic record. I mean, I had a great band, and, you know, to just see people, like, being well, like kind of like a little bit tired after like five or seven acts and then we went on this marathon night and then just getting up and dancing at the end of our set when we played a funky version of all blues and becoming so rapturous about the music i think that was one of the most memorable times that i've had but you know i've, I've had quite a quite a lot of those times uh, in my career joe you know it's very clear that you love what you do and that story about, you know, when you heard Toots and, and you felt it. But after all of this time of dedicating your life to this craft, what's so important about jazz to keep that flame going? Why do you fight so hard for jazz? I love all kinds of music, and I'm, I'm also heavily involved now. I started, you know, I used to write orchestral music, and I won an award at the International Radio Festival of New York in 1991 for a, for a classical folk overture. But my first love is jazz. My 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 face to the public, whether the the, the tire hits the road, is jazz. It's my my first love, my my biggest form of expression. I I love it so much. Firstly, you know, as you have articulated in your writings as well, that you know, jazz musicians are some of the nicest, most humble people. And the greater they are, the nicer they are. You know, and 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 that's so true, right? Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't believe it when I asked Winton to play for my birthday show, man. He said, hey, man, you don't need to send me no money, you know. I mean, this is Winton Marcellus we're talking about, yeah. you know. And and then, of course, I did tell him, hey, let me do something. And I, and I, and I sent some bread for Louis Armstrong Educational Foundation. But but that's the kind of people that most, it's the most beautiful music family on the planet. There's, there's the least amount of politics, the most amount of love the most amount of passion and uh, and this goes not just between the musicians and, and by the people the listeners, the audience members it's a family man Amen, for sure What was the first live jazz show you ever saw? I mean, the, you, you had the moment with, with Quincy and Toots, but what was the first live show that really blew you away? 
Okay, I was in the, with the music and drama companies. Uh, it's kind of like the USO that you have in the US. Yeah. We had gone to entertain the troops in, uh, in Clark, actually Clark Air Base, the US base uh, in the Philippines. And then the group Seawind, you remember them? Yeah. Seawind was playing uh, at this huge uh, uh, entertainment, this kind of cultural center, the Philippine Cultural Center in Manila. And I went to the show and I was blown away, not just by the musicianship, you know, I ended up recording with Bob Wilson, the drummer and co-leader of Seawind, and years later. But that first show of like the tightness and the compositional, um, you know, intelligence of their music and, and you know how funky they were. Those great horns, Jerry Hay, Larry Williams, saxophone and uh, and keyboards as well. And the first time I hear, I heard a, a concert in Asia with like a really great sound system because. Before that, I saw a couple of pop shows in the stadium, and they had those old horn-like speakers on the on the football field, you know, and it sounded like a large transistor radio. But this was the first time I, I got the whole treatment, right? The great music and the wonderful production and sound, and that kind of, that really blew me away. If you have a dream tonight, and you run into your younger self around the time that you were starting out. In, in music before your albums and everything started going and you could give your younger person a bit of advice based on what you've learned throughout all the years what would you say what would you what would be the advice well i used to be kind of shy believe i mean as, for someone that's regarded as being quite gregarious nowadays uh you know but in my 20s my teens because i know i started off professionally as a, a professional jazz pianist at the age of 16 and a half i was a band leader at a club in singapore in 1977 uh with my musicians all in their 30s and 40s you know and but i still was very shy into my mid-20s i would say you know reach out and try and make connections um be musicians and generally an artist are very intrinsic and we you know i think the one thing i i really I'm thankful to my dad for is that he loved the people and that's what I, I inherited from him and many musicians maybe they love people but they don't know how to reach out and make this connection so as much as it's important to get the music thing together try to learn as soon as you can to know how to reach out to people audience members potential supporters and so on and so forth because it's part of your life it's part of your ecosystem and you've got to start you know start building your ecosystem as early as possible in your life we've had this long absence away from live music and and clearly with the amount of shows that you've played it's a second home when the gates open up and we start getting over COVID and you return to the stage and we return to the audience, what do you hope are some of the silver linings that we realize collectively about this long absence from live music? Well, the first thing is I hope that all of us, whether listeners and musicians, stop taking for granted what this beautiful gift of music we have, you know. As a musician, the gift of being able to make the music and for the listeners to enjoy it, you know. Musicians are listeners too, and I miss going out and watching concerts as much as much as I I love playing them. You know, I think that you know, if anything, I hope that we don't forget how precious this thing is that we have, and you know, never take it for granted again. You know, do you have a dream show that you would, if you could get into a jazz DeLorean and go back in time and see a show, and maybe talk to the musician? Is there a show that you would love to go see? Someone you would love to talk to? You know, I've had them amazing experience I'm, I'm born at a really interesting age and it's so funny if i was living in the u.s i don't know if i ever would have got the chances that i have, that I have gotten like i got to meet dizzy gillespie 
1987. I got to meet Miles Davis in 1989. You know, I never got to meet Charlie Parker. I never got to meet Sonny Rollins, even though Sonny Rollins has come to Singapore, and I know you've interviewed him. I wish I was, I think Newport, uh, Dizzy Gillespie's Newport concert in the late 50s, I think, was it 59, something like that? Man, I wish I was in the audience for that. Everyone has a perception or their version of who they think you are as a person. Your family, your friends, your fans, your students. But ultimately, you wake up every day, you live your life. Who do you think you are? I wake up every day, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, I often joke and say that I'm the, I, I think I'm one of the most hard, I, I'm the most hardworking person I know, but I also know that I'm the most lazy person I know <laughs> as well, you know. Uh, you know, procrastination is just, I don't know, a lot of my musician friends tell me they, accept, they suffer from the same affliction. Um, I see myself as being a, you know, a musician that loves what he does, uh, someone that really tries to connect the dots for the rest of the industry here in Singapore and also by extension with whatever happens around the world. I often joke and say that, you know, using a, since Easter is coming up, <laughs> I use a, a analogy of, 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 I'm like a Jesuit priest in, in a mission, and then I keep, I keep going to all the Mecca, the jazz, like the Vatican, New York, <laughs> you know, to go meet all the cardinals. Uh, every once in a while, uh, I'm just a I'm just a person that loves jazz, loves playing it, loves loves writing it, loves living it, and also I, I love the other things I do. Like right now, I'm uh, my main thing that I'm doing now. Not main thing. One of the main things I'm doing now is trying to write symphonic jazz music. And my concert uh, last uh, Saturday uh, uh, was was the icebreaker concert in my five year plan to see the symphonic jazz movement here at Singapore. Uh, so that in five years' time, it'll be a thing, you know. Uh, there's all the writers that write it, musicians who play it. I try and bring classical jazz fans together and appreciate each other's skill and music. Um, I'm sorry, I dig I'm digressing from answering your question in, with a simple, pithy answer, but, uh, I, you know, I guess I'm also a pretty confused and uh, <laughs> person with, at age 60 still feeling like I have so much more that I want to do in this life, you know. Yeah, wonderful, man. Jeremy, thank you for opening up. Thank you for talking to us about jazz and your and your life in jazz and your latest album. Good luck with everything and the return to the live stage. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview. We give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Singapore, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Jeremy for his time, music, and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.